Hello and welcome to Noteworthy Reading, where we're in part three of our Tolkien series in an episode entitled Holes in the Ground, where we are going to talk about Tolkien's actual experience in World War I, his friends uh, who survived the war and who didn't survive the war, and the mindset that Tolkien was in when he was exiting the war, which would uh, eventually lead up to his writing of Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion and all the great books that he authored. So we're glad you're here and we'll get started. So we left off last time with Tolkien's poem that he wrote right before he left to go to France, uh, entitled The Lonely Isle, and uh, that's where he bids farewell to e Edith, his, his wife, uh, whom he had just married. Uh, he bids farewell to England, where he grew up, and um, he's not too optimistic going into that conflict. And before you are too hard on Tolkien and are wondering, you know, why can't he be a little bit less gloomy, you know, and why, why isn't he excited to go... Uh, go off to war and all of that, uh, you have to understand that, that that conflict was uniquely awful. Uh, between 1914 and 1918, some 9 million soldiers would die, um, account, if you count for all sides, uh, and 38 million would be wounded. So uh, somewhere in the ballpark of 46 million casualties are taken in that war. And if you break it down like this, in a war that lasted 1,566 days, you have upwards of 6,000 soldiers dying every day. Um, that, that's a level of casualties that is really hard, difficult for us to fathom. Uh, in Afghanistan, we lost um, upwards of 2,000 soldiers, so uh, over a 20-year period. So that World War I conflict really marred that generation. I think uh, one in eight soldiers who went and fought would die. That's an incredible uh, level of, of casualties. Um, also, we, a lot of and the reason for that is because there's a lot, lots of new uh, weapons and munitions and tactics that are introduced, and um, it really turned turned into a situation where you, you had standoffs, you had uh, trenches, a lot of people on each side dug in and just shelling and machine gun fire, and um, they also used mustard gas, uh, which if you, uh, it would blister your skin and breathing again would irritate your lungs. Uh, they, they use chlorine gas, which people would die of asphyxiation. Um, particularly in the, in the Battle of Marne in France, uh, you could really see how artillery was shaping the war. They fired in, over the course of uh, five days, they fired um, 432,000 shells. Okay, and they could basically cover a, uh, in 50 seconds, they could cover a, an area of 10 acres, uh, and, and they could just sweep that area with artillery. Uh, so when you gather a lot of people in one place and you have that kind of firepower, it leads to digging in and mass casualties. And that's uh, part of why World War One is thought to be just one of the most awful circumstances that we've had really in the 21st century. If you want a really good book on how uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis's experiences in the war sort of shaped their their early adulthood, uh, you should pick up Joseph Lacante's um, The Hobbit Wardrobe and A Great War. It's extremely good. Uh, he's 
very thorough in his explanation of why the war happened um, and particularly what their day-to-day -day life was like in the war. You should pick it up. So before we really talk about Tolkien's daily experience in the war and what his role was like, uh, we'll do just a little brief synopsis on sort of why did World War I happen. Um, we're not going to do an exhaustive explanation of that. If you want one, you should listen to Dan Carlton's Hardcore History. He has a whole series on World War I, and it's fantastic. His descriptions and his level of detail, and I think just his ability to wrap his mind around uh, what what that entire uh, conflict was like, uh, he, it's excellent. You should listen to it. So, why did World War I happen? Uh, basically, there were a number of alliances that surrounded the Ottoman Empire, and what, what it meant was you have, you know, mighty powerful Russia, France, and Britain allied, and then you have Germany, Austria, and Hungary, and they're sort of trying to form their own sort of uh, power axis. And when the Austrian uh, duke and his wife were killed in, uh, on June 28th, 1914, that was viewed as an act of war. The German Kaiser uh, declares war, and... Um, uh, all of the other powers that are allied basically declare war on each other. So Russia, Germany, France, they're now at war with Germany, Austria, Hungary, and all the other parties that are involved. Uh, so it's the first really global conflict that, you know, all these countries are connected and fighting each other. So that's generally why it occurred, and Germany kind of had a carte blanche. Uh, they kind of wrote Austria and Hungary a blank check. They just said, you know what, if these people go to war with you, we're going to go to war with them. And there was, there was no other sort of um, political safeguards to prevent that from happening. So what was Tolkien's role in the war? Uh, like we mentioned before, Tolkien trained with the Lancashire Fusiliers, which was an infantry unit, and he was a signal officer within that interview, inter infantry unit. So he's going to be solving problems with uh, uh, telegram wire, He's going to be trying to send runners to get things communicated on where people are and what movements need to happen on the battlefield. There's still a monument um, in the Manchester area uh, outside the Gallipoli Gardens Museum, uh, and you can, it's a monument to the Lancashire Fusiliers. I think that'd be fun to uh, to visit one day. Um, so Tolkien, you know, he leaves England. He arrives in he arrives in France about four weeks before the Battle of the Somme. Okay. Um, and he was with uh, about 800 men, and they um, were stationed along the, uh, the river in northern France, the Somme River in northern France. They arrived by train, they ate a, a meal at a field kitchen, and Tolkien marched up the road where he saw orchards, cornfields, poppies uh, that were blooming blue and red. Uh, so the, it it's it's not really like the uh, the season is in sympathy with the the battle. Um, it's actually a very beautiful springtime. Um, but eventually it did start raining. The roads got really muddy. They're moving these heavy artillery pieces, uh, lots of heavy munitions on these roads. And you have to understand the infrastructure back then wasn't really made to handle. First of all, off the track, all the traffic, the weight that they that those roads were uh, uh, bearing, and also you know the rain just really did it in. So it. it this beautiful spring turns into this uh, muddy mess where you have all these men who are gearing up to, to get ready to fight. So uh, Tolkien, along with four other officers, were s serving under uh, Colonel Godfrey Byrd. 
and they were joined by the Royal Irish Ri Rifles, who was an infantry unit to sort of bolster their numbers there. A lot of the uh, a lot of the men that Tolkien was stationed with were uh, veterans of the Boer War, uh, and he wasn't he wasn't too impressed with them. Uh, he, one of the things that um, he said is that the, the most improper job of any man is bossing other men. Not one in a million is fit for it, and least of all those who seek the opportunity. So you get the idea that, you know, being stationed with all these guys who were, you know, telling each other what to do, and uh, it wasn't really his thing. Uh, he he um, was a good lieutenant, he was a good leader, but he, didn't, he wasn't uh, best friends with many of the other leaders that he was with. Tolkien's friend Rob Gilson was actually stationed nearby, uh, and he recalls also seeing the flowers and the poppies that were kind of tangled and growing everywhere in the gardens that uh, the communities had. Uh, but he also noted that he could see the artillery fire in the distance, and he said that actually it had the grandeur of thunderstorms. You could see the flashes, you could hear, uh, you know, these booms, uh, and it, it, he said it would have been uh, beautiful if it wasn't so terrible. But um, he was near... Tolkien, they were both around Boozencourt, um, which was about three miles away from the front line, and that's where Tolkien first came under uh, German uh, shelling. Uh, he and other, you know, his um, company he was stationed with, they would shelter in cellars and houses and huts because they were constantly being barraged. They could look over on the horizon, they could see the, uh, the German balloons that were um, ho hovering over the trenches because that's where the forward observers would actually look and see um, where the enemy uh, enemy movements were and where where it would be a good place to shell. So, Tolkien Station in Boozencourt, and why is there this big conflict there? Well, the Germans had occupied a hill. Uh, it was called um, the Height of Olivers, and it was just a chalky white ridge, but it gave them the high ground so they could see, uh, have a better view and, and uh, be more difficult to overtake. Um, by any advancing force. Um, so, on uh, July 1st, 1916, that was the first day of battle there, um, over 20,000 Allied soldiers died, 35,000 were wounded. So, uh, a, a very, uh, very intense conflict that Tolkien witnessed. On July 14th, in the spirit of the Allies' Bastille Day, because you got to remember this is France, uh, the British planned an advance of 22,000 troops. Uh, and a lot of their movement was done at night. Uh, a lot, you know. So you have in the dark, you have all this traffic, all these horses and men trying to trying to maneuver. Um, but in the end, they would end up taking about fifty-seven thousand casualties. And you kind of have to wonder if they were just hoping that the Germans would run out of ammunition. But um, eventually, uh, eventually they would take that hill, uh, but at, at great loss. And you could. Even if you just look at the German preparation, if you look at if you look at the Allies trenches and you look at the Germans trenches, the Germans had you know wooden planks, they had ladders, um, deep dugouts. Their engineering and their preparation was much better, uh, and the even with the constant shelling, uh, it, it almost looked like there was barely a dent in some places. So uh, and that was not that couldn't be said for the the French and British trenches. Um, they just weren't as well made, so they took a lot. Uh, a lot more casualties. One soldier, Robert Graves, described the, quote, soul-deadening trenches as a nauseating place where mud, rain, lice, fleas, spoiled food, rotting corpses, packs of rats, 
as big as cats and swarms of flies eating dead things um, marred a battlefield where men died every minute as steel rain rained down on their heads. It was a place of brutality and terror that broke the psyche of many men who returned from this front with uncontrollable shakes and night terrors. Uh, we now know, you know, this is PTSD, but they also had, because of all the the uh, concussive blast and the constant constant shelling, uh, they um, experienced kind of this new phenomenon of shell shock. They would actually have men who were standing, they, they looked like they were fine, but they would just be still, almost... Uh, almost in like an epileptic state, and some of them were actually just standing there, and they hadn't died yet. Um, but they, they, there's actually a video of this. If you look on YouTube and you just uh, YouTube shell shock, World War One shell shock, you'll see people with un uncontrollable shaking, and they think that all the uh, all the blasts uh, affected people's nervous systems, uh, so that they couldn't uh, control their their bodies as well. Um, Authors like uh, Wilfred Owen recalls, you know, just the monstrous anger of the guns. Uh, Henry Williams uh, recalls how one wave of men would merge into the first and second wave uh, as some wave gave to tear while others slowly bowed and rolled over dead. Uh, Ernest Hemingway said of World War I, World War I was the most colossal murderist and mismanaged butchery that has ever taken place on Earth. Any writer who said otherwise lied. So the writers either wrote propaganda, shut up, or fought. So, pretty... Pretty awful memories of, of that whole situation. So that's a brief picture of what uh, Tolkien's life was like during that five months. Um, you know, he had memorized call signs. Uh, he avoided using flags because that attracted attention. They couldn't, uh, they couldn't use a lot of manual signals uh, from, you know, that were visible because obviously that would be seen and they'd be fired upon. Um, but... Uh, he eventually developed symptoms of the influenza, the trench fever, that um, was started uh, in World War One. And if you count Spanish influenza deaths over t deaths over time, World War One is still the most um, mass casualty event that uh, we've ever seen. Um, and you know, there was a lot of people who would look down if you try to cry off sick. I mean, this wasn't. Uh, you have to understand, this wasn't uh, Tolkien trying to get out of anything. Um, he was uh, transferred to a hospital on October 28th, 1916, uh, and they confirmed that he had contracted trench, fe trench fever. Um, it probably saved his life. Uh, they, they tried to rehabilitate him a few times and um, you know, get him back on his feet and strong enough to, to go back, but uh, eventually the doctor just said you know, he's got to heal up before he's going to be able to go back, and by the time uh, he was, uh, he got better, uh, the war was over. So, um, uh, in a way, uh, his, his sickness probably saved him. Um, uh, but sadly, not all of his friends survived. Um, many of his friends, uh, T.K. Barnsley, G.B. Smith, uh, Rob Gilson, and other schoolmates, they, they, uh, they died. Uh, and, uh, many of them in the Battle of the Somme, where eventually, uh, there were 300,000 casualties all in all in the Battle of the Somme. Half a century later, uh, Tolkien would reflect on this, uh, I guess the losses of his friends in the war, and he wrote, uh, you know, all but one of my close friends were dead, and I think he meant Christopher Wiseman. Um, so I think it's interesting that he could be later in life and still say, you know, um, 
all those relationships that he formed growing up, all the uh, the people that he, he bonded with in the TCBS and at King Edwards um, still meant a great deal to him and he missed them very much. So on the morning of July 1st, 1916, uh, Tolkien's good friend, uh, Rob Gilson, was um, about a thousand meters away from the, the German line and uh, the British had just been pounding that line constantly, constantly. And it was hard to believe that anything over there that they had just shelled and shelled could could uh, still have survived. Uh, but as we mentioned before, you know, those German trenches were very well made. And they um, they were a lot more prepared for that, that sort of artillery war than uh, the British and the French. Um, but uh, at... Around seven, Germans start counterfiring. They fire these massive, you know, two-gallon drum-sized shells over their head, and there's there's uh, machine gun uh, rounds zipping overhead. Uh, and uh, at 7:20, uh, Gilson, you know, checks his watch. He readies his men. He spreads them over about a hundred yards of line uh, of, of their trench. And then um, at 7.30, he whistles them up the ladders, and they start charging. Um, there was a captain who was wounded, who was uh, with uh, Gilson's charge. And um, he, he was wounded 10 minutes in, and he said he, he recalled that he saw the lieutenant uh, still charging across. Um, at about uh, 9 a.m., they had moved 200 yards, so past the German front line. And then Gilson's major was hit. Gilson gives verbal command. He puts Gilson in command on, uh, to keep going. And um, I guess the last we know is that uh, Gilson Sergeant Mazur was hit, and one of the soldiers came crawling back and said that uh, Gilson had passed away. Uh, so Tolkien's friend uh, died that morning. One poem that, uh, not Gilson, but G.B. Smith wrote, uh, sort of um, in memory of his friends, or uh, sort of wishing that they could all be together again uh, in the midst of this grand conflict. Um, goes like this. It's, he says, Let us tell quiet stories of kind eyes and placid brows, where peace and learning state, of misty gardens under evening skies, where four would walk of old with steps sedate. Let's have no word of all the sweat and blood, of all the noise and strife and dust and smoke. We who have seen death surging like a flood, wave upon wave, that leapt and raced and broke. Or let's sit quietly, we three together, around a wide hearth fire that's glowing red, giving no thought to all the stormy weather that flies above the roof over tree overhead. And he, the fourth that lies all silently in some far distant and untended grave under the shadow of a shattered tree shall leave the company of the hapless brave and draw nigh unto us for memory's sake because a look, a word, a deed, a friend are bound with cords that never a man may break unto his heart forever until the end. So this fourth that Smith is referencing is is Gilson. Uh, this was his um, his mourning of his friend's death. Um, G. B. Smith, who authored that poem, he actually died while serving with the Sal Salford Pals nine miles north of Bizencourt. He was helping drain roads in freezing rain and snow, uh, and it actually organized a football match to happen later on in the day. But um, he was uh, hit by a howitzer round. That was fired four miles away, and he smoked a cigarette at the aid station, uh, said he was fine, and he died two late, days later of uh, infection. So that was the second of Tolkien's friends to die. Tolkien didn't know uh, about his friend's death immediately, um, but uh, he did find out uh, in a letter from Chris Wiseman about Smith's death. Um, Wiseman wrote to him and said he couldn't really 
he couldn't really say much about it, but uh, he uh, hoped that Almighty God would be worthy of their friend, which I think there's um, that uh, is is very sounds pretty calloused at that point. I guess um, Wiseman was probably struggling, having seen what you know that whole generation was struggling, wondering why all this was happening to them. They've been uh, taught all these virtues. They've been um, you know brought up to be uh, you know to lead, and, you know, now there's just all, all this killing and all this death and more. Um, so you can you can kind of see a touch of callousness in, in Wiseman in the way that he states that. And something else that uh, Chris Wiseman actually wrote to Tolkien, um, and this is really about, you know, he's reflecting on the death of, of his friends and he's realizing that they hadn't been saved. You know, their, their group had not been saved. Um, and uh, he's, he writes Tolkien and he says, you know, what is not done is left undone, and love that is voided becomes strangely like mockery. Um, you know, he, he's writing this sort of wishing that his friends hadn't could could still live the lives that he knew they wanted to live. Uh, and you, you can very much see that in Wiseman. Um, looking back on the war, Tolkien remarked that you know the. There, the utter stupid waste of the war didn't justify pacifism or unwillingness to protect what is good. Uh, he uh, about you know actually going to fight and protect your country and the things that you believe in. He said it will it will be necessary to face it in an evil world. Uh, so Tolkien didn't really exit the world as a pacifist or with too much cynicism like m much of his generation. Um, you can also see this attitude that Tolkien had exiting the war uh, in his char character Galadriel when she says. Through the ages of the world, we have fought the long defeat, meaning that um, even though you think you won't win, it doesn't mean that you have the right to give up. Uh, I think that's a that's a, a grace that's lost on a lot of people these days. Um, another character that uh, you can kind of see Tolkien's sentiment about war, um, uh, who expresses Tolkien's sentiment about war is Captain Faramir when he says, War must be while we defend our lives against a destroyer, a destroyer who would devour all. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they protect. Uh, that's from Tolkien in The Two Towers. That's the mindset that Tolkien had after World War I. Um, he also, you know, he, he lost a lot of his friends. His friend um, T.K. Barnsley died. Uh, he and Chris Wiseman were the only ones who really survived uh, that he was close to. Um, this, the the influenza saved his life. Uh, it was an awful experience, and, but um, upon upon leaving the conflict, uh, he still uh, he st he he still believed that it was it's good to defend the things that you believe in. Uh, and he, unlike many of his generation, he he didn't um, he wasn't so damaged uh, by the whole conflict that he he couldn't bring himself to believe that um, there is a good God and that. Uh, you do have to fight evil when you when you when you see it. So that's where we're going to leave off. We hope to return to Tolkien later. Uh, we thank you for joining us for this series.